Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Glad that stopped. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13. And you know, given today's sermon, probably a better thing for me to ask you than how are you doing this morning is how goes the battle, brothers and sisters? How goes the battle? We're winning. Not too good this week. Yeah, different answers to that just in your own life and circumstances. How goes the battle? Because it is a battle, isn't it? Each day, bringing what? Both old and new things and circumstances in life that require us to wrestle with them, many of them involving relationships with the people that are in our lives. I think uh, we forget sometimes that it is a battle. So maybe, maybe how goes the battle, brothers and sisters, is an appropriate way to greet one another in Christ, if only to remind ourselves and to help us recognize and to remember that we're indeed in a battle and life is a battle. Do you ever wonder why it's a battle? Why is life so hard? I mean, really, why? I mean, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, did all he needed to do, and yet life is still hard. It's a battle. One of the things Jesus came to proclaim, in fact, the Gospels summarize all that he came to proclaim, and it's throughout the Gospels, including in our passage this morning, one of the things he came to proclaim was the presence of the kingdom of God right now. God reigns now. He is reigning, and his reign or his kingdom is here now. Really? Well, then, why the pain? Why so much sorrow? Why is so much still wrong? The kingdom of God is here? Well, it doesn't seem like it sometimes. I mean, I know Jesus came to usher in the kingdom. He came and did perfectly all he needed to do to make us and the universe, for that matter, right with God. He did it all completely. And so here we are in the kingdom of God. So what do you think so far of the kingdom of God? Is it all you thought it would be? Or do you have a question, something like the following question, that at least since Jesus' day, and maybe since far before, but at least since Jesus' day, followers of Jesus in particular have struggled over. I know I do from time to time, maybe you do too, and that question Well, we've been all around it already this morning, but that question that maybe stalks us or eats at us from time to time might be something like this one. How can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? How can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? And if you ever ask that question or one like it, then you are not alone. In Bible times, the expectation that Messiah 
would separate the wicked from the righteous and establish a pure community is beyond question. People in Jesus' day without doubt expected that when Messiah comes, the Romans and all other enemies will go. We see this in John the Baptist who expected the Messiah to bring judgment. And when that did not happen, John sent messengers to Jesus asking if he were indeed the coming one. In the Psalms of Solomon, not Scripture, but one early Jewish work, listen to what the writer says that captures very well what the Jewish expectation of Messiah was in Jesus' day. The Messiah is expected to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners, to destroy the unlawful nations. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. He will not tolerate unrighteousness even to pause among them. The alien and the foreigner will no longer live near them. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. And in Jesus' days, zealots, Pharisees, and especially that Qumran community would all have vigorously nodded their heads in agreement. And against that expectation of Messiah, there comes Jesus down the path, teaching love God and love others, teaching if a Roman asks you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Say, what? None of their expected messianic acts were happening in Jesus' ministry. Yet he was there proclaiming the presence of the kingdom of God. And that, against that disconnect between what they expected of Messiah and Jesus the Messiah, they asked, they must have asked, how can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? Why are the Romans still here? Why is separation of the righteous from the unrighteous not happening, Jesus, if you are indeed Messiah? Why is judgment not occurring? How can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? And it's in response to this question, one that we may have today and one the people in Jesus' day certainly had too. It's in response to this question that Jesus tells the three parables we'll look at this morning. The parables of the weeds, mustard seed, and leaven, which you should have before you in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. The setting of these parables is the Sea of Galilee, probably Capernaum, where the crowds listening to Jesus got so large they almost literally pushed him into the water. He had to get on a boat to address them while they were gathered on the shore. That's the picture. Can you see it? A shoreline mobbed with people listening to Jesus teaching from a boat just offshore. He's just told them the parable of the sower, which we'll look at next week. 
And then Jesus continues with these three parables to answer the question, how can this be the kingdom if evil is still present? I'll begin reading at Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven has become, your NIV says is, but the Greek is aorist passive, the kingdom of heaven has become, I prefer that translation because it feels more as I think the author intended to emphasize the kingdom is here, it has become, and not is somewhere else, it has become. The kingdom of heaven has become like a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount, three measures of flour, until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears let him hear. So what's the answer to our question this morning? How can this be the kingdom if evil is present? What's the answer to the question? Well, using the image of the parable of the weeds, the answer is because the weeds and wheat are growing together until the harvest. 
Or in other words, because both good and evil are present in the world for a time, indeed until the end of time. That's how this can be and is the kingdom of God, even though evil is still present. The farmer, the son of man, Jesus, is allowing both good and evil to exist until the end of the age. But where is the kingdom then? Sandwiched between the parable of the weeds and its explanation, did you notice how Matthew organizes his chapter? He inserts two parables between the parable of the weeds and its explanation. Maybe he does that because that's the chronological order in which it took place that day in Galilee. But it might also be a literary decision on Matthew's part to insert between the rather sober message of evil remaining until the end of time and its explanation to insert right in the middle of the parable of the weeds and its explanation two little parables of hope. Twin parables about mustard seeds and leaven that urge us to remember that things are not what they sometimes seem as we engage in the battle of life. Two parables that urge us not to be put off by what appears unimpressive or small or slow in coming. Two parables that tell us that no matter what it might feel like sometimes in the pain of life, the kingdom is indeed here and it's growing and one day it will be fully realized and the prophecy of Ezekiel 17 will come true where God says on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant a tree and it will produce branches and birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. You'd never think that a tiny mustard seed could grow into so great a tree. You'd never think that a little yeast could so fully transform dough. And we might wonder, how can this be the kingdom of God if evil is still present? But it is present, and it's growing. And at the end of time, it will be fully experienced when all evil is taken away. Those two little parables of the mustard seed and leaven picture the presence of the kingdom of God alive and well and growing in the world. And for those disciples, the presence of the kingdom of God in Jesus, despite their expectations not yet fully being met, but it's there and it's growing even if people don't recognize it. And Jesus' expectation that full revelation of the kingdom will come gives us hope while we continue to live in a world where evil is still present. And that's the message of these three parables, brothers and sisters. Good and evil remain until the end of time. But take heart. The end of time will come. And with it, evil will be gone forever, even though it may not always seem like it. What those disciples needed to know and what we need to know is that the future kingdom was already present in Jesus' teaching and work. God's longed-for kingdom has begun. It's started. It's growing. And it's going to come to fulfillment. If any of you study these parables further, as I hope you do, you will find many commentators who try and drag much more from this parable that, in my opinion, its shadow is trying to share with us. 
They want to use the parable, for example, to tell us how to deal with evil in the world. That is, we should, like the farmer, be patient with it. Let it be. Be passive. Let it go on existing, unopposed. Uh, Don't try to purify uh, the kingdom or culture just like the farmer. Leave it be, because after all, there it is. But that can't be the primary message, at least, of these parables. For one, this is Matthew. His gospel is especially concerned with righteousness, and he takes a particularly dim view of evil and sin that Matthew would suggest passivity toward evil is difficult to conceive. He is anything but passive in confronting evil. But also this. Did you notice what is missing entirely from Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds? What's completely missing? Jesus doesn't mention the farmer's patience at all. And so if he tells the disciples when they ask, hey, explain this parable, what does it mean? If he doesn't tell the disciples, well, it means we should be patient with evil, if he ignores that entirely, well, then maybe we shouldn't camp there at least in teaching that's what this parable says. Now, there are other parts of the Bible that talk about how we do and don't confront evil. How do we both love our enemies and oppose evil at the same time? It's a difficult issue, and it's discussed in the Bible, but it's not discussed in this parable. The parable lets it be. The parable tells us that good and evil will both be present until the end of time, but it doesn't tell us how to deal with it beyond encouraging us that one day God will completely. Others want to make a big deal about the fact that the devil left after sowing the bad seed. They pull and they tease and they say, oh, 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 that's like an end of time thing. That's when the devil will be bound for a time and they put it in their chart. Well, again, Jesus doesn't even mention that as part of his explanation of the parable. So perhaps we should be hesitant to make a big point or any point of it either. There's one thing through our parable series I, I hope you appreciate. Over the centuries, the church has tended to read too much into Jesus' parables. Here's just some of what's been suggested about the parable of the leaven. Here's what the church at various stages in its history taught about the parable of the leaven. The woman was understood to be Mary, or the church, or even the synagogue which killed Christ the leaven. The leaven was also understood across church history to be the 12 apostles, Christian doctrine, and knowledge of Scripture. The three measures of flour were given, over time, 17 different identifications, ranging from the Trinity to specific moral virtues to Asia, Africa, and Europe. One commentator in reviewing all of these interpretations made this comment. This tells us more about the church than it does about the parable. That is, the church's tendency to read 
too much into parables over the centuries. Let the parable simply state what's on its face, including how Jesus explains it. Good and, even will, uh, good and evil will remain until the end of time. But take heart, the end of time will come, and with it, evil will be gone forever, even if it doesn't feel that way now sometimes. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his great work, Lord of the Rings, Mr. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, discussion buddies, as uh, it were, both of them writing in some spectacular fictional work, pictures of truth and of the Bible. And Tolkien repeatedly captures the feeling that life is like a battle against evil. Okay, you can't read his books or see the movie especially that's been made without knowing that, ah, he's using battle imagery because it's like there all the time. And he uses the very literal imagery of war, the war against Sauron and his minions. And he also includes bits and pieces of hope as he tells it, as he tells his tale, as the story builds to the end of the age of Middle-earth. I've got a few scenes that show in picture at least the message of our parables this morning, that good and evil remain until the end of the age, and that we can take heart because one day the end of the age will come, and perhaps it will come at a time when all hope seems lost, like it does in this first clip. And so watch and imagine, if you will, that the battle scene even is like life is, whether we're battling against powers and principalities in the spiritual realm or we're battling just to get out of the door in the morning on time. Greater small struggles and wrestles. And one day, maybe the day will feel a lot like this. Let's watch. Pull everybody back. Pull them back. Pull back! Taken. It is over. Send word for the women and children to make for the mountain pass and barricade the entrance. So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? Right out with me. Yes. Yes.
One day, like we sang to begin the service, justice will roll down from the mountain. There'll come a day when that little seed is grown into a full tree and it's ready to provide its shade once and for all. And there'll come a day when the yeast has finally made it into the full measure of all of that dough and it's completely leavened. And there will come a day when the battle and the wrestle and the difficulty of life will come to an end and we'll look up and if it's a literal image that John saw in the book of Revelation, we'll see someone on a white horse too. Only the name Gandalf won't be on our lips. It will be Jesus. Maybe followed soon by the word, finally. And down he'll come with the host of heaven in picture, literally, we'll all find out. But however it plays out in excruciating detail, the day is coming where our struggle and our wrestle and battle with evil will end once and for all and will not just return to the Garden of Eden where the possibility of making a wrong choice existed. It will be something so much more and better and transformational. I don't even think we can imagine what existence would be like without sin and without evil and without time. Amen? And if you can watch that last scene of Lord of the Rings and not think of this verse, um, I can't. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And as we struggle in the battle of life, my friends, take heart. Because there will come a day when the battle will be over and there will come a day when Jesus comes again on his white horse and evil will be no more. P.S. There's actually time for a P.S. this morning. It's a miracle. Why is the farmer patient? I know patient, patience of the farmer isn't a fundamental expository principle of this parable, but it's okay to touch on it lightly, I think. Why is the farmer patient? The parable of the weeds tells of the farmer not wanting to uproot the wheat along with the weeds. Seminary libraries full of books exploring what that exactly means. I think 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9 helps us understand that picture even more. I wonder, I wonder, maybe I'll ask him someday if I remember. Hey, Peter, when you wrote this, did you remember the three parables that we looked at this morning? Do you remember the three parables, Peter, when you wrote the following? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
one reason at least. In my opinion, the reason that God patiently allows good and evil to coexist for a time. That we're living in this gap between comings of Messiah. The reason is love. You say, wait a minute. doesn't feel too loving to me to have to live through this pain. But my brothers and sisters, there's more love than just the love for us. It's God's love, his deep, yearning, heartbroken love for the lost. And so he holds off the end of the age. He holds off judgment because he can't stand the thought of losing even one of his precious kids. So when we're tired of the battle, when we're weary of the evil in the world, perhaps it's helpful to know that the reason we're having to deal with it is because of God's love for the lost, his not wanting anyone to perish. At one point, Frodo asks Sam, why do we do it, Sam? Why? And Sam says, because there is good in the world, Mr. Frodo, worth fighting for. Sam's right. There is good worth fighting for. In the case of these parables, the good of each person who, because of the farmer's patience, is found. So it's love that drives the farmer's patience, and it's the same love that should drive us, too, as we continue to take up our cross daily, every morning, and follow Jesus into the battle. Love of God, and especially his love and our love of others, should drive us, too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know and have experienced all too well that there is both good and evil in the world. Father, thanks for your words of encouragement this morning that all is not what it seems, that the presence of evil in the world does not mean that your kingdom is not here. To the contrary, we have your guarantee through the Son, your Son, Jesus, that the kingdom is here and it's growing and one day it will be fully grown and fully realized and evil will be banished forever. Help us, Father, to play our part in our turn, in our lives, in this church. Help us to play our part, Father, in the growth of the kingdom in the spreading of that yeast. May you use us to grow and advance the kingdom and getting closer to one day, Father, when you'll step into history again and end it in a way that dawns in a whole new age that maybe we can't even call age because there'll be no more time. Father, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said,
Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction this morning? This one from Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds, where he says this. I hope you find it encouraging this morning. Jesus says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all as you go on your way. See you next week.